recognize that where there are people in front of you or people around you at your workplace, your first responsibility is to love God and to love those people. And that is your ministry. Whether you are paid by a church or a nonprofit or not, or whether you're paid by Chick-fil-A or Burger King or (laughs) IBM or whoever it is, your calling is to love those people first and foremost as a follower of Christ. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And this is the Christ and Culture podcast. In today's Christ and Culture conversation, we'll answer one of your questions about calling. And after that, we have another edition of our very famed and acclaimed On My Bookshelf. But first, let's begin with our segment in the news. February is Black History Month. And Dr. Quinn, who are some black theologians, pastors, writers who have influenced you in some way? I wish I could say 15 to 20 more than the ones I am going to say, and I certainly have much to catch up on here. But here are just a few that come to mind. They're not, they're not just theologians. They're not just writers or just pastors. It's kind of a few along the way. Many I could mention. Here are the ones that come to mind. First, Charles Octavius Booth. I think you can't uh, talk about and appreciate black theology or black Christian influence without mentioning Booth. Uh, moving quickly from there, then, even someone much more contemporary like Bruce Fields. I don't know how many people even know of Bruce Fields. Um, he was deeply encouraging to me as a very young you know, uh, Ph.D. student and then finishing Ph.D. programs. I met Dr. Fields through a few different conferences, and he was just incredibly kind and gentle. The first African-American theologian uh, ever hired full-time faculty at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Super, super sharp uh, guy and very much just a godly gentleman. As well, I think you can't, you can't talk about influence of African-American thought and theology and Christian history without MLK. I mean, mm-hmm. how can you not talk right. about Martin Luther King Jr.? And a lot of things that we could say there. But in short, I think uh, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail is one of my favorite pieces of literature, period. And I think still to this day, one of the best pieces of American literature available. I mean, it's just it's not only what he said, but when he said it, how he said it, from where he said it. Exactly. Uh, It's just a fantastic piece of work. But if I could only mention one African-American who's had a really, really strong and continues to have a really strong influence on me. It's got to be Tony Evans. Yeah. I love Dr. Tony Evans. Even in today's time, and in these last couple of years, have kind of tested everybody, regardless of background, regardless of culture and race and ethnicity and what have you. It's tested so many people. And I can think of, I can, really can't think of anybody, regardless of color, who has had uh, more of a level head, sober mind, and wise approach to all things cultural tension than has Dr. Tony Evans over the last few years. There's a great article in our Christ and Culture website by Aaron Ducksworth that's worth reading about Martin Luther King, about reading him fairly. And I think that that is an important word for us today. I do agree with you that I I, I wish that there were more uh, that I could say that I've had uh, that have influenced me. And I think I, I, I have some work to do in that area. I do remember as a young Christian attending college uh, in Tennessee, and they had a special speaker come in uh, to preach, and he was S.M. Lockridge. And I got to hear him in person, which was quite a remarkable thing, because Lockridge, who was a pastor of Calvary Baptist Church 
in San Diego for, for decades, uh, was, was a well-known conference speaker during that time. And mm-hmm. he would preach literally around the world. And he had a sermon that he preached, that, that he preached that night, it was called The Lordship of Christ. And I encourage uh, uh, those listening, YouTube, S.M. Lockridge, his S.M. stood for Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, uh, S.M. <laughs> Lockridge. Uh, you, you, he, uh, the name of the sermon, I, I think on YouTube, is The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, I think is the wow. way the person put wow. it. And I don't know if it's the greatest. It, it certainly had a great impact on yeah. me. I'll mention another. Um, I kind of had him listed here as an honorable mention, but just uh, uh, in terms of pastoral influence, E.V. Hill. Yes. Uh, from Southern California, missionary Baptist, uh, p- p- planted a church there, pastored, I think, from 1961 until he passed away around 2003 or so. Um, his ministry was remarkable, but I'll tell you what sermon uh, sort of captured my imagination as a teenager more than any other was the sermon that he preached at his wife's funeral. His wife's pre- not only just preaching his wife's funeral, but the way that he he preached that message and, and preached it uh, as as her pastor. I mean, not just her husband, but as her pastor. I just remember pulling over the side of the road because I was so teared up, I couldn't drive anymore, and just captivated by his thoughtfulness, his pastoral heart, his commitment to his wife and to Christ, and and just the great influence that he had as a, as a man of God. So for today's Christ and Culture conversation, we're going to answer one of your questions. So Dr. Keithley, here's the question that comes from one of our students today. How do I know if I'm called? I'm not surprised that we get a question like this from one of our students because as a uh, theological school in which so many are coming because they are preparing for ministry, one of the great questions they face is, how do I know I'm, I'm called to be a pastor or a missionary or something of that nature? Let's remember that the church has recognized the three great witnesses to a calling, the witness of the Word, the witness of the Spirit, and the witness of the church. Think about it, for all callings, we're called to salvation. How were you called? Well, there was a drawing of the Spirit. You heard the Word, the witness of the Word, and then the church testified, yes, you are someone who is uh, truly been born again and is confessing Christ. You, you manifest those things. And so I think that the, the, the general universal call that every Christian experiences really does operate as a pretty good template for any kind of particular special call that we're talking about. And through the years, uh, there has been uh, those threefold witness or threefold test. Does one experience a drawing of the Spirit? As it says, if any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. That's typically been understood to be something in the, the line of what the psalmist talks about. He shall give you the desires of your heart. We can, we can talk about the exposition and exegesis of those particular texts, but I think that the, the, the intent is good. The idea that first and foremost, there should be that sense that this is what God wants me to do. There, there is this desire. There is this passion for that, that God has called you into some particular type of, of ministry. And then second, 
do you fit the, the biblical qualifications? Uh, and they're given to us both in First Timothy and in the book of Titus. And so there has to be the witness, the agreement of the Spirit, uh, the agreement of, uh, the, the, of the Word. And then third, does the church recognize this calling? How many times has someone uh, surrendered to the pastorate or to be a missionary and everyone in the, in the congregation said, well, yeah, we all recognize that. We knew that was coming because they recognize those particular types of characteristics of someone who's called. So I think that if there is that threefold witness, as, that, that, that gives you a pretty straight line for understanding whether or not one is called. Yeah, it's a good question and a common question, although we might tweak it a bit. How do I know if I'm called? Well, that's an easy one. If Jesus has saved you, you are called. <laughs> uh, I think what's most of the time meant behind this kind of a question is, well, how, um, uh, how do I know what I'm called to do? How do I discern what I'm called to do more specifically? And that, that moves from kind of what you're talking about, Dr. Keithley, from the general calling to God and to his people more to how do I actually max, how do I really spend my life for the sake of Christ and what do I do for that? And oftentimes uh, this is where the language of vocation is woven into this. And historically the, the word vocation from vocatio just means calling. Right. Uh, the Lutheran tradition is most helpful here where Luther in the wake of the Reformation and in order to return the gospel to ordinary people, uh, he highlighted four key callings or four, four vocations of all Christians. One, a calling to the church. Uh, two, a calling to the family. Three, a calling to the community. And then four, a calling to your workplace. And I would say when you consider calling, consider all of those things. But again, most of the time this question means, what am I called to do? What really ought I pursue by way of a job? Um, and to that I would say, first of all, don't over-romanticize that. It would be great if you got paid to do the things that you most love to do, but you may not. It may be that you have to do something and get paid to do it that you don't absolutely love. But I would say to that, first, recognize that where there are people in front of you or people around you at your workplace, your first responsibility is to love God and to love those people. And that is your ministry. Whether you are paid by a church or a nonprofit or not, or whether you're paid by Chick-fil-A or Burger King or <laughs> IBM or whoever it is, your calling is to love those people first and foremost as a follower of Christ. If, however, um, you are privileged enough to be able to get paid to do the things that you most love and get excited about, praise the Lord for that. And absolutely, your, your calling then, in terms of your vocation, your job, uh, overlaps with the things that you most love to do. But that's not always the case. And, and I would say don't over-romanticize that. Uh, think about those four areas. How do I aim towards that love for God and love for others in all four of those areas? And especially in a place like Southeastern where so many are preparing for pastoral ministry or missionary work and those kinds of things, which is so important, I think I would also issue a little bit of a warning of, even though I'm, I'm I, myself as a pastor— have such high respect for those in that great calling of pastoral role. I don't think of pastors or missionaries as superior to any other calling in life. I think I think pastors are central to the people of God, but not superior among the people of God. We have a unique function that we play, a unique role that we play, but I also don't do things that many other people in my congregation do. They have opportunities to minister to people that I'll never see, that I'll never they'll never come to my class. Um, and so I want to I want to sort of outline and even highlight that ecology of callings uh, in our churches. Yeah, I think that, um, and again, we're talking about someone who is a student at Southeastern. Um, so what we find it 
often in, in this kind of context is that someone is very concerned about missing are failing to discern the calling of God. And I, I want to put that person at ease because I just don't find in Scripture where someone is called to be a spiritual Sherlock Holmes, yeah. where I am supposed to figure out whether or not the, the puzzle about whether or not God has called me to be a pastor or a missionary to a particular field or something of that nature. I just don't find that. So rather than fretting or being anxious or stressful about those things, what I would encourage a person to put their greatest area of concern is, am I yielded? Hmm. Am I surrendered? Am I open to whatever God would have me to do? Am I at that place that if God opened a particular door or if he impressed upon me a particular uh, uh, opportunity, would I say yes? Uh, And so what I find in my personal life, and I think it's the witness of Scripture, that the greater challenge is making sure that my heart is where it ought to be rather than is my mind able to solve the mystery of am I called? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, can, I, can, I think the Bible makes it pretty clear to us. Uh, if we are yielded to him to where we'd say, Lord, uh, where you send me, I will go, and what you have me, I will do, then the guidance is up to him. For the person discerning a call to kind of clerical work as well, you, you mentioned the threefold witness there, Dr. Keithley. I would say, too, just very practically, and I'm just reflecting even on my own life and experience. I mean, I was 13 and 14 years old, and I never felt more alive than in two places, baseball field and church. Yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't good enough to go to the majors, so I, that was pretty quickly not on the table. Um but I was most alive at church, and it wasn't about seeking the stage. I wasn't trying to get on the stage. It wasn't any of that. I loved being with the people of God. I loved serving people, ministering to people. I loved learning about the Scriptures. I didn't know if I had the gift of teaching, didn't even know to ask that question at the time. I just knew that I loved those people. I loved that place, and I, I wanted to do that the rest of my life. Well, I think that may not be the all that you need for one's uh, sign with respect to discerning calling. But if you come alive in those kinds of places, then consider that and then begin to really ask the question, do I desire this? Uh, can people that I love and trust in my church affirm these kinds of things in me, both in terms of a, a character, but also in terms of a gifting? Um, and then begin to take further steps in that direction. I think that would be very much what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said, if anyone desires the office of a bishop. Now, of course, it's possible for someone to desire something for the very wrong reasons, self-promotion, all of the things. He's talking about someone, as you just said, there is this joy. uh, There is, as you said, you come alive. um, You you just think, Lord, if you'd let me do this for the rest of my life, I will be so very grateful. Yeah. Um, I think the self-promotion piece is important too, Doc. I think Especially in this this age of so many people with massively public failures in ministry and, and many more things we could say there. But for those aspiring to lead God's people and to serve them in that kind of pastoral way, one question that we should keep in front of us and in front of those in our churches that are aspiring to this is, are, are they self-promoting? Am I a, a stage seeker? Or am I the kind of person who are, who are happy or who is happy to seek obscurity even in the midst of serving God's people? And this goes to the uh, testimony of the Word. Yeah. Because yeah. when you look at the biblical qualifications for a minister, 
We're talking about someone who has those areas under control. Yeah. Uh, those in, those very important characteristics that you're talking about. Yeah. So practically speaking, here's here's some just dashboard metrics to consider. Um, if you feel called to ministry, feel called to pastoral ministry, and you're more concerned about how many Instagram followers you have than how much time you spend in prayer for your people, that's a bad sign. Or at least it's a warning sign. doesn't mean that you're not called to pastoral ministry, but it, it is something to consider. If, if these are the things, if, if the, you see the church as your stage to platform yourself, even if you're not admitting that, uh, I think those are those are areas where that sort of desire needs to really be considered very critically. If, however, you are happy as can be serving God's people in fill-in-the-blank town at fill-in-the-blank church and no one ever knows about it but Jesus and the people you serve, that may be a really good sign. And if someone is thinking that I will serve whenever I get position X. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, what we find is is that those who are called to minister in some particular uh, vocation, uh, they find joy in whatever opportunity comes up. Mm, And it doesn't have to be a a staff position or a a, a professional position. They just want to be used by God in, in those particular areas. And then the church recognizes that. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's noticeable, and, yeah. and that makes a big difference. So in terms of just practical steps, here this person uh, is thinking through, uh, am I called and exactly what am I called to do? How do I discern that? How do I know that? Here, here, are, a couple of, here are a couple of ways to think through that. Um, one is think about the area where your gifts and your excitement tend to overlap. Um, where those things overlap, and then just consider those. And that, that may be clerical ministry, or it may be something completely different. And, but that's okay. Let that begin to direct your decisions on that. Another thing that I think is, is really helpful, and this is a, just a Tim Kellerism, I think. I think this is where this came from. But just a helpful kind of look up, look in, look out. Look up being, first, am I, am I just walking with the Lord faithfully? Am I, am I genuinely seeking the Lord and, and seeking to be filled with His Spirit? Am I, and am I, am I already as best I can, pursuing righteousness and holiness in my life. And then look in. Okay, what do I really desire to do? What do I really love to do? What kind of things do could sort of bring me to life? Um, is it being with people, God's people? Is it, being, is it being outside in the plants? Do I need to be a gardener? Is it doing something? You know, whatever it is. Uh, so look in. What do you really desire to do? And then look out. And this is where one of my mentors uh, was very fond of saying, stretch your gifts to meet the needs of the day. Uh, sometimes what I want to do and what I need to do may not be the same thing. And, and that's where our life is a sacrifice anyway. This may be a daily taking up of one's cross and following Christ. And depending on where you are in the world and what time in which you live, the, the thing that you may be called to do or the things that you may be called to do may not be what you most want to do. It's just what's needed for the sake of God and his people for now. Uh, so I, I think I would push in those kinds of directions, but don't don't feel the pressure to decide that all by yourself. Uh, make sure that you have the right kind of people around you who will be honest with you about your gifts, uh, who will be honest with you about your weaknesses, even about your character, um, and then let them help to lead and guide you in those decisions. Yeah, that would be, that's an important point, that I think that this kind of decision uh, needs to be made uh, in the company of good counselors. Yeah where you share with your pastor and elders what you're thinking and praying about, 
listening to what they have to say. Yeah. That, that'll help immensely. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern tell us what they're reading right now. Dr. Ben Holloway, what's on your bookshelf? Well, I'm reading this fascinating book by Colin McGinn called Mindsight, which is about the imagination. And the imagination is perhaps one of those neglected aspects of our intellectual capacities. Uh, nonetheless, it's all pervasive. Our capacity to form an image, uh, to recall something, our capacity to dream up uh, inventions that uh, don't exist uh, are all a very prominent part of our intellectual life. And Colin McGinn does a great job in trying to carve out a place for the imagination. It's somewhat like perception in that it's visual, but it's not the same as perception because perception, we don't have any control over what goes into our eyes, um, whereas we have full control over what we imagine. And it's not like thinking. It's not just like belief. Uh, it's something different because it's definitely visual. So he says that this is a completely separate capacity. It has some overlap with these other two uh, features of our intellectual life, but the imagination has this very powerful role. And in doing so, he uh, sets out rather a good uh, kind of scope of operations for the imagination. Uh, for example, he has this very interesting idea about our dreams, that our dreams seem to have an author uh, that we uh, don't, we don't, we allow full reign, if you like, and an audience, which is us, and that the, the, the imagination is able to generate narratives rather like a, a work of fiction. Uh, and he has some great insight into uh, what goes wrong when, uh, for example, hallucination takes place and these sorts of things. But he also has some uh, interesting limitations for the imagination, and I think those are very interesting to me too, is that there is a role for the imagination, but not, uh, generally speaking, in forming justified beliefs. So you can't imagine something and then come to believe that it's true and, have a, and therefore have a reason for it. So your imagination can't justify beliefs like uh, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, for example. That would have to come from perception, from, from a gospel writer having seen the risen Christ, for example. Uh, and so this helps, I think, because I think uh, the Christian is very involved in imagination. And in, in some respects, I think the imagination uh, needs a little more uh, help in, th in thinking about it and its role within our life, uh, both to limit its scope so we don't use it in place of, for example, good evidence to believe something that's true, uh, but as, as well for the power of the imagination to help us, especially uh, in uh, helping us love the beliefs with, that we do have. For example, those people who reread the Chronicles of Narnia over and over again and would cite that as being a great source of their strength in their faith aren't necessarily saying that the Chronicles of Narnia supplies evidence for believing that their faith is true 
but instead supplies great energy for their love for the belief that they have uh, that is grounded in scripture, for example. Uh, and I think that's an important role for the imagination. And Colin McGinn's book just uh, gives you a great kind of insight into this uh, this capacity we all have. Well, Dr. Holloway, if I hear you correctly, you're saying that uh, perhaps we haven't paid attention to the value of forming our imagination in terms of forming the Christian life and the Christian character. Yeah, I think it, is, I think it would be, it's a helpful aspect of our life that we've been given, the capacity to form images, to, to use this uh, for our intellectual life, but also for our psychology. Um, and that's why Christian fiction is so important. It's good for our psychology. It's not, it doesn't tell us whether, uh, whether these things are true or not, uh, but it can improve the quality uh, of our strength in our beliefs that we have. So we believe that God exists, but you don't believe that God exists because a work of fiction describes God's existence. You, you believe it because there are good reasons to believe it, but you might have improved feelings about your belief in God. If you're able to imagine worlds, uh, for example, worlds like Tolkien creates and C.S. Lewis creates, uh, in which um, uh, the, the sort of God figure uh, performs certain roles in that world, um, which gives us great encouragement. Uh, and we're able to feel more strongly about those beliefs and not to neglect that aspect of our intellectual life. Uh, we're not merely sort of mechanical machines processing our beliefs, but we're also feeling uh, people who uh, have certain feelings about our beliefs. And the imagination is a powerful tool in having the right feeling towards uh, those beliefs that we possess. So the book is Mindsight. And this concludes our podcast. Thanks for listening. Take a minute and go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and a review. Have a great day.